You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Chapter 21, Part 1 Presentiments are strange things, and so are sympathies, and so are signs, and the three combined make one mystery to which humanity has not yet found the key. I never laughed at presentiments in my life, because I've had strange ones of my own. Sympathies, I believe, exist, for instance, between far-distant, long-absent, wholly-estranged relatives asserting, notwithstanding their alienation, the unity of the source to which each traces his origin, whose workings baffle mortal comprehension, and signs, for aught we know, may be but the sympathies of nature with man. When I was a little girl, only six years old, I one night heard Bessie Levin say to Martha Abbott that she had been dreaming about a little child, and that to dream of children was a sure sign of trouble, either to oneself or one's kin. The saying might have worn out of my memory, had not a circumstance immediately followed which served indelibly to fix it there. The next day Bessie was sent for home to the deathbed of her little sister. Of late, I had often recalled this saying and this incident, for during the past week scarcely a night had gone over my couch that had not brought with it a dream of an infant, which I sometimes hushed in my arms, sometimes dandled on my knee, sometimes watched playing with daisies on a lawn, or again, dabbling its hands in running water. It was a wailing child this night, and a laughing one the next. Now it nestled close to me, and now it ran from me. But whatever mood the apparition evinced, whatever aspect it wore, it failed not for seven successive nights to meet me the moment I entered the land of slumber. I did not like this iteration of one idea, this strange recurrence of one image, and I grew nervous as bedtime approached and the hour of the vision drew near. It was from companionship with this baby phantom I had been roused on that moonlit night when I heard the cry, and it was on the afternoon of the day following I was summoned downstairs by a message that someone wanted me in Mrs. Fairfax's room. On repairing thither, I found a man waiting for me, having the appearance of a gentleman's servant, he was dressed in deep mourning, and the hat he held in his hand was surrounded by a crape band. "'I dare say you hardly remember me, miss,' he said, rising as I entered. "'But my name is Levin. I lived coachman with Mrs. Reed when you were at Gateshead eight or nine years since, and I live there still. "'Oh, Robert, how do you do? I remember you very well. You used to give me a ride sometimes on Miss Georgiana's bay pony.' "'And how is Bessie? You were married to Bessie.' "'Yes, miss. My wife is very hardy, thank you. "'She brought me another little one about two months since. "'We have three now, and both mother and child are thriving. "'And are all the family well at the house, Robert?' "'I am sorry I can't give you better news of them, miss. "'They are very badly at present, in great trouble. 
"'I hope no one is dead,' I said, glancing at his black dress. "'He, too, looked down at the crepe round his hat and replied, "'Mr. John died yesterday was a week, at his chambers in London. "'Mr. John? Yes. And how does his mother bear it? "'Why, you see, Miss Eyre, it is not a common mishap. "'His life has been very wild. "'These last three years he gave himself up to strange ways, "'and his death was shocking.' I heard from Bessie he was not doing well. Doing well? He could not do worse. He ruined his health and his estate amongst the worst men and the worst women. He got into debt and into jail. His mother helped him out twice, but as soon as he was free, he returned to his old companions and habits. His head was not strong. The knaves he lived amongst fooled him beyond anything I ever heard. He came to Gateshead about three weeks ago and wanted Mrs. to give up all to him. Mrs. refused. Her means have long been much reduced by his extravagance. So he went back again, and the next news was that he was dead. How he died? God knows. They say he killed himself. I was silent. The things were frightful. Robert Levin resumed. Mrs. has been out of health herself for some time. She got very stout, but was not strong with it, and the loss of money and fear of poverty quite breaking her down. The information about Mr. John's death and the manner of it came too suddenly. It brought on a stroke. She was three days without speaking, but last Tuesday she seemed rather better. She appeared as if she wanted to say something and kept making signs to my wife and mumbling. It was only yesterday morning, however, that Bessie understood she was pronouncing your name, and at last she made out the words... "'Bring Jane. Fetch Jane Eyre. I want to speak to her.' "'Bessie is not sure whether she's in her right mind "'or means anything by the words, "'but she told Miss Reed and Miss Georgiana "'and advised them to send for you. "'The young ladies put it off at first, "'but their mother grew so restless "'and said, Jane, Jane, so many times "'that at last they consented. "'I left Gateshead yesterday, "'and if you can get ready, Miss,' "'I should like to take you back with me early tomorrow morning.' "'Yes, Robert, I shall be ready. "'It seems to me that I ought to go.' "'I think so too, miss. "'Bessie said she was sure you would not refuse, "'but I suppose you will have to ask leave before you can get off. "'Yes, and I will do it now. "'And having directed him to the servants' hall "'and recommended him to the care of John's wife "'and the attentions of John himself, "'I went in search of Mr. Rochester.' He was not in any of the lower rooms. He was not in the yard, the stables, or the grounds. I asked Mrs. Fairfax if she had seen him. Yes, she believed he was playing billiards with Miss Ingram. To the billiard room I hastened. The click of balls and the hum of voices resounded thence. Mr. Rochester, Miss Ingram, the two Mrs. Eshton, and their admirers were all busied in the game. It required some courage to disturb so interesting a party— my errand, however, was one I could not defer, so I approached the master where he stood at Miss Ingram's side. She turned as I drew near and looked at me haughtily. Her eyes seemed to demand, What can the creeping creature want now? And when I said in a low voice, Mr. Rochester, she made a movement as if tempted to order me away. I remember her appearance at the moment. It was very graceful and very striking. She wore a morning robe of sky-blue crepe, 
a gauzy azure scarf was twisted in her hair. She had been all animation with the game, and irritated pride did not lower the expression of her haughty lineaments. "'Does that person want you?' she inquired of Mr. Rochester. And Mr. Rochester turned to see who the person was. He made a curious grimace, one of his strange and equivocal demonstrations, threw down his cue, and followed me from the room. "'Well, Jane,' he said, as he rested his back against the schoolroom door, which he had shut. "'If you please, sir, I want a leave of absence for a week or two. "'What to do? Where to go? "'To see a sick lady who has sent for me. "'What sick lady? Where does she live? "'At Gateshead. "'That's a hundred miles off. "'Who may she be that sends for people to see her that distance? "'Her name is Reed, sir, Mrs. Reed.' Reed of Gateshead. There was a Reed of Gateshead, a magistrate. It is his widow, sir. And what have you to do with her? How do you know her? Mr. Reed was my uncle, my mother's brother. The deuce he was. You never told me that before. You always said you had no relations. None that would own me, sir. Mr. Reed is dead, and his wife cast me off. Why? Because I was poor and burdensome and she disliked me. But Reed left children. You must have cousins. Sir George Lynn was talking of a Reed of Gateshead yesterday, who, he said, was one of the veriest rascals on town. And Ingram was mentioning a Georgiana Reed of the same place, who was much admired for her beauty a season or two ago in London. John Reed is dead too, sir. He ruined himself and half ruined his family and is supposed to have committed suicide. The news so shocked his mother that it brought on an apoplectic attack. And what good can you do her? Nonsense, Jane. I would never think of running a hundred miles to see an old lady who will, perhaps, be dead before you reach her. Besides, you say she cast you off. Yes, sir. But that is long ago, and when her circumstances were very different, I could not be easy to neglect her wishes now. How long will you stay? As short a time as possible, sir. Promise me only to stay a week. I'd better not pass my word. I might be obliged to break it. At all events, you will come back. You will not be induced under any pretext to take up a permanent residence with her. Oh, no. I shall certainly return if all be well. And who goes with you? You don't travel hundred miles alone. No, sir. She has sent her coachman. "'A person to be trusted?' "'Yes, sir. He has lived ten years in the family.' "'Mr. Rochester meditated. "'When do you wish to go?' "'Early tomorrow morning, sir.' "'Well, you must have some money. "'You can't travel without money, "'and I dare say you have not much. "'I have given you no salary yet. "'How much have you in the world, Jane?' "'He asked, smiling. "'I drew up my purse. "'A meager thing it was. Five shillings, sir.' He took the purse, poured the hoard into his palm, and chuckled over it as if its scantiness amused him. Soon he produced his pocketbook. Here, said he, offering me a note. It was fifty pounds, and he owed me but fifteen. I told him I had no change. I don't want change. You know that. Take your wages. I declined accepting more than was my due. He scowled at first. Then... As if recollecting something, he said, 
Right, right. Better not give you all now. You would perhaps stay away three months if you had fifty pounds. There are ten. Is it not plenty? Yes, sir, but now you owe me five. Come back for it, then. I am your banker for forty pounds. Mr. Rochester, I may as well mention another matter of business to you while I have the opportunity. Matter of business? I am curious to hear it. You have as good as informed me, sir, that you are going shortly to be married. Yes, what then? In that case, sir, Adele ought to go to school. I am sure you will perceive the necessity of it. To get her out of my bride's way, who might otherwise walk over her rather too emphatically? There's sense in the suggestion, not a doubt of it. Adele, as you say, must go to school, and you, of course, must march straight to the devil? I hope not, sir, but I must seek another situation somewhere. In course, he exclaimed, with a twang of voice and a distortion of features equally fantastic and ludicrous. He looked at me some minutes. An old Madame Reed, or the Mrs. Her Daughters, will be solicited by you to seek a place, I suppose. No, sir, I am not on such terms with my relatives as would justify me in asking favors of them. But I shall advertise. You shall walk up the pyramids of Egypt, he growled. At your peril you advertise. I wish I had only offered you a sovereign instead of ten pounds. Give me back nine pounds, Jane. I have a use for it. And so have I, sir, I returned, putting my hands in my purse behind me. I could not spare the money on any account. Give me five pounds, Jane. Not five shillings, sir, nor five pence. Just let me look at the cash. No, sir, you are not to be trusted. Jane, sir, promise me one thing. I'll promise you anything, sir, that I think I am likely to perform. Not to advertise and to trust this quest of a situation to me, I'll find you one in time. I shall be glad so to do, sir, if you in your turn will promise that I and Adele shall both be safe out of the house before your bride enters it. Very well, very well, I'll pledge my word on it. You go tomorrow, then. Yes, sir, early. Shall you come down to the drawing-room after dinner? No, sir, I must prepare for the journey. Then you and I must bid good-bye for a little while. I suppose so, sir. And how do people perform that ceremony of parting, Jane? Teach me. I'm not quite up to it. They say farewell, or any other form they prefer. Then say it. Farewell, Mr. Rochester, for the present. What must I say? The same if you like, sir. Farewell, Miss Eyre, for the present. Is that all? Yes. It seems stingy to my notions, and dry and unfriendly. I should like something else, a little addition to the right. If one shook hands, for instance, but no, that would not content me either. So you'll do me no more than say farewell, Jane. It is enough, sir, as much goodwill may be conveyed in one hearty word as in many. Very likely, but it is blank and cool farewell. How long is he going to stand with his back against that door, I asked myself. I want to commence my packing. The dinner bell rang, and suddenly away he bolted, without another syllable. I saw him no more during the day, and was off before he had risen in the morning. I reached the lodge at Gateshead about five o'clock in the afternoon of the first of May, 
I stepped in there before going up to the hall. It was very clean and neat. The ornamental windows were hung with little white curtains. The floor was spotless. The grate and fire irons were burnished bright, and the fire burnt clear. Bessie sat on the hearth, nursing her last-born, and Robert and his sister played quietly in a corner. "'Bless you. I knew you would come,' explained Mrs. Levin as I entered. "'Yes, Bessie,' said I, after I had kissed her, "'and I trust I am not too late. "'How is Mrs. Reed? Alive still, I hope?' "'Yes, she is alive, and more sensible and collected than she was. "'The doctor says she may linger a week or two yet, "'but he hardly thinks she will finally recover. "'Has she mentioned me lately?' "'She was talking of you only this morning, and wishing you would come. "'But she is sleeping now, or was ten minutes ago, when I was up at the house. "'She generally lies in a kind of lethargy all the afternoon, "'and wakes up about six or seven. "'Will you rest yourself here an hour, miss, and then I will go up with you?' "'Robert here entered, and Bessie laid her sleeping child in the cradle, "'and went to welcome him. "'Afterwards, she insisted on my taking off my bonnet and having some tea.' "'for she said I looked pale and tired. "'I was glad to accept her hospitality, "'and I submitted to be relieved of my travelling garb "'just as passively as I used to let her undress me "'when I was a child. "'Old times crowded fast back on me "'as I watched her bustling about, "'setting out the tea-tray with her best china, "'cutting bread and butter, toasting a tea-cake, "'and, between whiles, giving little Robert or Jane "'an occasional tap or push "'just as she used to give me in former days. "'Bessie had retained her quick temper "'as well as her light foot and good looks. "'Tea ready, I was going to approach the table, "'but she desired me to sit still, "'quite in her old peremptory tones. "'I must be served at the fireside,' she said, "'and she placed before me a little round stand "'with my cup and a plate of toast, "'absolutely, as she used to accommodate me with some privately purloined dainty on a nursery chair, and I smiled and obeyed her as in bygone days. She wanted to know if I was happy at Thornfield Hall and what sort of person the mistress was, and when I told her there was only a master, whether he was a nice gentleman, and if I liked him. I told her he was rather an ugly man, but quite a gentleman, and that he treated me kindly and I was content. Then I went on to describe to her the gay company that had lately been staying at the house, and to these details Bessie listened with interest. They were precisely of the kind she relished. In such conversation an hour was soon gone. Bessie restored to me my bonnet, etc., and accompanied by her I quitted the lodge for the hall. It was also accompanied by her that I had, nearly nine years ago, walked down the path I was now ascending. On a dark, misty, raw morning in January, I had left a hostile roof with a desperate and embittered heart, a sense of outlawry and almost of reprobation, to seek the chilly harborage of Lowood, that born so far away and unexplored. The same hostile roof now again rose before me. My prospects were doubtful yet, and I had yet an aching heart, I still felt as a wanderer on the face of the earth, but I experienced firmer trust in myself and my own powers, and less withering dread of oppression. The gaping wound of my wrongs, too, was now quite healed, and the flame of resentment extinguished. 
"'You shall go into the breakfast-room first, said Bessie, "'as she preceded me through the hall. "'The young ladies will be there.' "'In another moment I was within that apartment. "'There was every article of furniture looking "'just as it did on the morning I was first introduced "'to Mr. Brocklehurst. "'The very rug he had stood upon still covered the hearth. "'Glancing at the bookcases, "'I thought I could distinguish the two volumes "'of Bewick's British Birds,' "'occupying their old place on the third shelf, "'and Gulliver's Travels and the Arabian Nights "'ranged just above. "'The inanimate objects were not changed, "'but the living things had altered past recognition. Two young ladies appeared before me, "'one very tall, almost as tall as Miss Ingram, "'very thin, too, with a sallow face and severe mien. "'There was something ascetic in her look,' which was augmented by the extreme plainness of a straight-skirted black stuff dress, a starched linen collar, hair combed away from the temples, and the nun-like ornament of a string of ebony beads and a crucifix. This, I felt sure, was Eliza, though I could trace little resemblance to her former self in that elongated and colorless visage. The other was as certainly Georgiana, but not the Georgiana I remembered, "'the slim and fairy-like girl of eleven. "'This was a full-blown, very plump damsel, "'fair as waxwork, with handsome and regular features, "'languishing blue eyes and ringleted yellow hair. "'The hue of her dress was black, too, "'but its fashion was so different from her sister's, "'so much more flowing and becoming, "'it looked as stylish as the others looked puritanical.' In each of the sisters there was one trait of the mother, and only one. The thin and pallid elder daughter had her parents' carngorm eye. The blooming and luxuriant younger girl had her contour of jaw and chin, perhaps a little softened, but still imparting an indescribable hardness to the countenance otherwise so voluptuous and buxom. Both ladies, as I advanced, rose to welcome me, "'and both addressed me by the name of Miss Eyre. "'Eliza's greeting was delivered in a short, abrupt voice, without a smile. "'And then she sat down again, fixed her eyes on the fire, and seemed to forget me. "'Georgiana added to her, how do you do, several commonplaces about my journey, "'the weather, and so on, uttered in rather a drawling tone, "'and accompanied by sundry side-glances that measured me from head to foot.' now traversing the folds of my drab merino pelisse, and now lingering on the plain trimming of my cottage bonnet. Young ladies have a remarkable way of letting you know that they think you a quiz without actually saying the words. A certain look, coolness of manner, nonchalance of tone, express fully their sentiments on the point, without committing them by any positive rudeness in word or deed. A sneer, however, whether covert or open, had now no longer that power over me it once possessed. As I sat between my cousins, I was surprised to find how easy I felt under the total neglect of the one and the semi-sarcastic attentions of the other. Eliza did not mortify, nor Georgiana ruffle me. The fact was, I had other things to think about. Within the last few months, feelings had been stirred in me so much more potent than any they could raise— Pains and pleasures so much more acute and exquisite had been excited than any it was in their power to inflict or bestow, that their airs gave me no concern either for good or bad. 
"'How is Mrs. Reed?' I asked soon, looking calmly at Georgiana, "'who thought fit to bridle at the direct address, "'as if it were an unexpected liberty. "'Mrs. Reed? Ah, Mama, you mean. "'She is extremely poorly. "'I doubt if you can see her tonight. "'If,' said I, "'you would just step upstairs and tell her I am come, "'I should be much obliged to you.' "'Georgiana almost started.' "'and she opened her blue eyes wild and wide. "'I know she had a particular wish to see me,' I added, "'and I would not defer attending to her desire "'longer than is absolutely necessary.' "'Mama dislikes being disturbed in an evening,' remarked Eliza. "'I soon rose, quietly took off my bonnet and gloves, "'uninvited, and said I would just step out to Bessie, "'who was, I dared say, in the kitchen.' and ask her to ascertain whether Mrs. Reed was disposed to receive me, or not tonight. I went, and having found Bessie and dispatched her on my errand, I proceeded to take further measures. It had heretofore been my habit always to shrink from arrogance. Received, as I had been today, I should a year ago have resolved to quit Gateshead the very next morning. Now it was disclosed to me all at once that that would be a foolish plan. I had taken a journey of a hundred miles to see my aunt, and I must stay with her till she was better, or dead. As to her daughter's pride or folly, I must put it on one side, make myself independent of it. So I addressed the housekeeper, asked her to show me a room, told her I should probably be a visitor here for a week or two, had my trunk conveyed to my chamber, and followed it thither myself. I met Bessie on the landing. "'Mrs. is awake,' said she, I have told her you are here. Come and let us see if she will know you. I did not need to be guided to the well-known room to which I had so often been summoned for chastisement or reprimand in former days. I hastened before Bessie. I softly opened the door. A shaded light stood on the table, for it was now getting dark. There was the great four-post bed with amber hangings as of old, there the toilet table, the armchair, and the footstool, at which I had a hundred times been sentenced to kneel, to ask pardon for offenses by me uncommitted. I looked into a certain corner near, half expecting to see the slim outline of a once dreaded switch, which used to lurk there, waiting to leap out imp-like and lace my quivering palm or shrinking neck. I approached the bed, I opened the curtains, and leant over the high-piled pillows. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.